G'day mate, Forty here. So I've been learning all about ADHD and, and so I'm recognizing oh, the importance of meditation. I need to meditate more. And so I did like the longest, most thorough, the, the deepest, the, the most spiritual, the most cleansing, the most uplifting, the most centering uh, meditation that I've done in months. Like I did it like a good 40 minutes from Daniel Siegel's Wheel of Awareness meditation exercise. So just Google Daniel Siegel Wheel of Awareness. There are all sorts of varieties. But I did the fair dinkum, full-on, hardcore, like 30-minute right, meditation. This was this was no cheaper. This was no California meditation, all right? So a California stop is where you kind of roll through a stop sign, and a California hello is where you give someone a blowjob so that they know that you really mean good morning. Well, this was no California meditation. This was a fair dinkum, full-on, hardcore, 30-minute, dense, seagull, like wheel of awareness meditation. I got centered, right? I got in touch with my introception, what was going on inside of me. I got in touch with my desire for love and joy and blessing for myself, for other people, just extending the love and the joy uh, first towards myself and then towards family and then friends and the people closest to me and then towards my all of Tenham Sands and then all of central Queensland and then all of Queensland, all of Australia just kept extending the love like all through the through the world coming coming from my heart. Alright, very, very powerful meditation because I've been I've been learning about ADHD and I'm convinced I've got ADHD and ADHD guys it's the magic key that explains, you know, the, the manifold failures in my life. Like, why can't I sustain romantic relationships? ADHD. You know, why have I been sexually obsessive? ADHD. Why have I had some trouble in the employment realm? ADHD. <clears throat> why have I often been emotionally out of control? ADHD. <clears throat> uh, why am I, like, overly spontaneous? Oh, impulsive. Oh, ADHD. What else does it do? Oh. Why did I struggle with my education? Oh, ADHD. Uh, yeah, why did I have a lack of success in earning money? Oh, ADHD. Why have I had fairly troubled relations with other people, sometimes with, with family, with, with friends, with, with community? Right. Oh, ADHD. Like, ah, oh, the magic key. This Guys, this explains everything. Now I know why, why I am the way I am. And so I'm getting centered. I'm getting spiritual. I'm getting connected getting my interoception and all that proprioception, getting all that sorted out. And I didn't get to say goodbye to a family member because I was just so in tune with the one and the all. I didn't get to say goodbye to someone because I was ignoring my phone. Like my phone is almost always on do not disturb. So like my, my name was shouted out saying goodbye and getting texts. I just completely missed it because I was so intent on getting spiritual. Bloody hell. So it's like it's really hard to both like love God and love your fellow man. So I was like all about loving God and getting spiritual, getting spiritually connected. And I just completely missed out on saying goodbye to a family member. Yeah, ADHD. It's not just a diagnosis to sell pharmaceuticals. It's a way of life, guys. Yeah, in and out. God forbid. God forbid. God forbid. Okay, so I just finished reading Stephen Turner's memoir. And uh, we all know Stephen Turner, right? Because he's been a guest on this show a couple of times. And uh, he just 
just published a memoir, Mad Hazard, A Life in Social Theory. So Mad Hazard is the name that uh, Max Weber, the German sociologist and political scientist, gave to the academic career. So Stephen Turner has spent his whole life in the academy. What the hell? Let's see what Tucker has to say. Speaker. And it's funny how we're supposed to feel about this. We're all supposed to be highly upset, outraged, appalled, on the verge of tears about the fact that some of his colleagues are trying to make it hard for Kevin McCarthy to become the Speaker of the House. Very upset. But why exactly is it so upsetting? It should be hard to become Speaker of the House in this country. Very hard. It's a big job. It's one of those powerful jobs in the world. It's not one of those positions you give to elderly men who've campaigned from their basement. If you want to be the guy who's second in line from the presidency in America, you've got to work for it. And Kevin McCarthy certainly has worked for it this week. Whatever you think of him, you get the feeling McCarthy would crawl naked through a sewer to get this gig. And that's not necessarily an insult, by the way. It's what it takes, obviously. Maybe it's what it should take. So if you take a deep breath and you think about it for a second, nothing we have seen in Washington recently, the supposedly apocalyptic world-ending drama of politicians arguing with each other, none of it qualifies as especially unusual or even bad. This is what democracy looks like when you get up close. I want one thing, you want another thing, we schedule a vote to see who gets it, or in this case, 11 votes. But whatever, how is that a disaster? Well, it's not a disaster. It's how the system is supposed to work. But don't tell the moron community that. They're too overwrought to hear you. Watch. An epic fail and stunning humiliation for Kevin McCarthy, who took the knee for Donald Trump, then gave away the store to the cuckoo fringe of his party. You couldn't construct a narrative that combines the elements of extremism, election denialism and incompetence more perfectly than the last 12 hours on the Republican side in the House. It's embarrassing. I do. And there, there is now there's a lot of hard feelings on, on, on both sides. Again, you have 90 percent of the caucus, 90 percent of the caucus standing firmly behind Kevin McCarthy. They look petty. I mean, they're putting on a show. I, I, I'll call it political porn. He's decided instead to pull the pin on the gr grenade and toss it among themselves. What an extraordinary moment of political failure by a political party. It's either personal against Kevin, or remember that this is the same brain trust that brought you uh, almost two years ago, January 6th. The way that they've gone about trying to achieve these demands has resulted in essentially this terrorist standoff between them and the overwhelming majority of people in their conference. Oh, they're so excitable. Are you following this? The failure to make it super easy and simple for Kevin McCarthy is extremism, declares Nicole Wallace. It's just embarrassing, says Ryan Zinke. It's pornography, says another. Poor old Charlie Sykes got so upset watching the proceedings that he compared a vote in Congress to an exploding hand grenade. There was smoke and fire and shrapnel and the shrieking of the dying calling out for their mothers because some people would not vote for Kevin McCarthy. That's what it was like in there, ladies and gentlemen. Some of us will never recover. <laughs> then another one of the buffoons in the clip you just saw went further and called the whole thing terrorism which is the remorseless use of violence against the civilian population to affect a political goal. So Chip Roy is Osama bin Laden now. Hunt him down in his cave. Dan Crenshaw of Texas, filling the role recently vacated by his friend Adam Kinzinger, said virtually the same thing yesterday. Anyone who doesn't support Kevin McCarthy for speaker is a terrorist. And Crenshaw's voice seemed to crack with emotions. He said he meant it. 
What's going on here exactly? Why are these people so upset? Well, part of it, of course, is political. Den Crenshaw is a committed neoliberal. He's a tool of his donors. He's hawkish on Ukraine's borders, but indifferent to ours. And Den Crenshaw knows that Kevin McCarthy is the least conservative speaker he is likely to get ever. And they all think that. Watch one of them make the case. There is this widespread myth among many of my conservative brethren that being electable makes you more moderate, mm -hmm. that being electable makes you part of the establishment. There is no frickin' establishment. If there was an establishment, this wouldn't be happening. Kevin McCarthy would be, by almost any objective measure, one of the two or three most conservative yep. Republican speakers in U.S. history, at least for the last hundred years. Paul Ryan was the most conservative speaker. This idea that being part of the establishment right. makes you a rhino squish loser is this fantasy that these guys are getting high on on their own farts and like Fox Green Rooms on. And it's nonsense. <laughs> you know what? Scolds the moron. Kevin McCarthy is conservative enough for you. So shut up and accept him or else we're going to call you names. <laughs> okay, tough guy, settle down. So again, what you're seeing here is the usual left-right ideological politics at work. But that is not all that is going on. Because actually, most politicians are not very ideological, even the ones who claim to be. They wouldn't know an idea if it got in the shower with them. In fact, a lot of them are agnostic about ideas. But the one thing that every politician has in common, every one of them, is every one of them wants to win elections. That's the goal. And honestly, by that measure, Kevin McCarthy has underwhelmed. The red wave that we were all promised, remember that? It didn't materialize last fall. The midterms were a crushing disappointment. Now, that is not all Kevin McCarthy's fault. If you want to blame a single person, blame Mitch McConnell, who deserves it. But Kevin McCarthy was the head Republican in the House when that happened, that debacle happened. And he shares responsibility for it. That's true. But you never know that from listening to Republican leaders in Washington. They don't talk about it. They've never atoned. They have no plan to change. They'd like to ignore what happened in November and move on as if everything is fine. That means... McConnell continuing to be minority leader. That means McCarthy as speaker. That means Ronna Romney McDaniel still running the RNC, the same team that was in place two months ago. How does that work exactly? If I'm a valet parker and I crash your car, you don't give me another car to park until I take a driving lesson, right? Oh, not in Washington. Have another car. A more expensive one this time. Because if there's one thing that Washington hates on a bipartisan basis... It's accountability. And unfortunately, the Republican Party is no different in that. No one is ever punished for failure or ever forced to explain how those failures happen. And as a result of that lack of accountability, no one ever improves. Everybody just keeps getting rewarded for producing the same disasters. Think about that. If you raised your kids like that, they'd be in prison. So maybe the main thing that's making people mad is that. Republican voters see the same people in charge producing the same mediocre results, paying a lot more attention to lobbyists than to them. That's not democracy, actually. It's the opposite of democracy. And watching this drives them insane. It's a fair bet that most people don't hate Kevin McCarthy as a man. He's no Mitch McConnell. Pretty nice guy, actually. But most normal people do hate the system that keeps promoting Kevin McCarthy for turning in a subpar performance. So say what you will about the effort to prevent McCarthy from becoming speaker, the terrorism, as we're calling it in Washington, is terrorism. That effort has one upside. 
That effort has challenged the current system in a meaningful way. Kevin McCarthy may in the end become Speaker of the House. He likely will because no one seems man enough to challenge him directly. So he'll get it by default and he's trying really hard. So maybe he does deserve it. But here's the critical thing to know. If he does become Speaker, by the time he becomes Speaker, Kevin McCarthy will have learned a lot. Kevin McCarthy will have publicly acknowledged his failures. He will have been forced to face the people he has disappointed, both within the Congress and outside of it. And he will have promised to change. So here we, we will have suffering, accountability, and repentance. Those are not bad things. No, those are the best things. Those are the wrenching life experiences that turn the mediocre into decent people. And Kevin McCarthy never would have done any of that unless he was forced to. None of us will ever do any of that unless we're forced to. So 20 of Kevin McCarthy's colleagues have forced him to become better. And the rest of us ought to be very grateful to them for doing it because no one else was going to. Victor Davis Hanson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the first person we turn to when things get confusing and weird because he makes sense of a world gone crazy. Professor, thank you for coming on tonight. I'm going to pass on the old Victor Davis Hanson. Let's, uh, let's get back to you know, high-quality live streaming about charisma. All right, so I just finished reading Stephen Turner's book, excellent book, his memoir from 2022, Mad Hazard, A Life in Social Theory, based on Max Weber's quip about a life in academic, academia is a, a mad hazard. And so back in 1995, Stephen Turner wrote a political paper on charisma, and I thought this, this applies to live streamers and why the typical trajectory of a live stream is fairly short. All right, so how do you become charismatic? So this is, this is Stephen Turner's theory, right? So take an example, Madonna, right? By her own action, she empowered her fans to do the same kind of edgy things that she was doing, such as wearing a bra on the outside, right? Powerful. You want to become a charismatic set wearing a bra on the outside. And her public acts reduced the risk of this behavior. Without her example, it would have been merely ridiculous. But Madonna was not a political leader. The secret was that charismatic leaders also did something that involved risk, right? To be a great live streamer, a great political leader, a great cultural leader, right? You usually have to do something that involves risk. And so you present through your body the promise of something that has previously been thought impossible or never even thought of because it was too risky. So there were years between, say, 2002 and 2007 where the most news broke on both the pornography industry and on Orthodox Judaism, perhaps, on my website. So how on earth could someone you know, be, be writing a blog about Orthodox Judaism and about the pornography industry at the same time, two different blogs? I mean, that's impossible, right? Well, only someone who can do the impossible, right? That, that person that person must have charisma. You know who also seemed to do the impossible? You know, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Jesus, Napoleon, Hitler, right? They all did something risky. And with their risk-taking, there was the implication that this new thing could only be achieved through them. Think about the arrival of J.F. Garapi on live streaming. Wow, this is someone who did a 
a postdoctoral research fellow at uh, Duke University in neuroscience. And now they're doing live streams on edgy, you know, alt-right topics. Impossible. All right. So this is the charismatic cycle, right? You have to begin by performing. Have to be. You have to begin by performing a miracle. I am not mute. I am charismatic, bro. You have to begin by performing a miracle. And then you get people's attention, right? When you perform a miracle, right? When you do something previously thought impossible, right? You perform a miracle, you perform a victory. That constitutes proof of your special abilities to do things that people did not think could be done, right? And then you gain followers, and then the existence of followers right, enables you to do even more things, right? And so with followers, you get new information, new possibilities, new ways to connect, new ways to create in this world, right? And so you've got this virtuous cycle. You do things thought impossible. You then generate new followers. With new followers, you get new powers. You keep repeating the cycle until your luck runs out, right? Uh, until the water reaches your throat. And that is the charismatic cycle. I thought that was a really good description of uh, charisma. Right? Someone does what looks like the impossible, you know, produces a very unlikely victory. So Scott Morrison, the leader of the Conservative Coalition in Australia, won a highly unlikely, most unprecedented election victory in 2019. And he had all power, right? He was charismatic. He'd done the impossible. But then he went on a vacation to Hawaii while Australia was burning and, you know, his power devolved and he, he lost that, that brief hold of uh, charisma. So that's uh, Stephen Turner's theory. Now, someone else had a theory on charisma and this is Randall Collins. So Randall Collins, Stephen Turner, two sociologists who may not be the biggest fans of each other and Randall Collins, his magnum opus was Interaction Ritual Chains. I don't think Stephen Turner has a, a magnum opus. And Randall Collins writes in his magnum opus, Interaction Ritual Chains. I mean, what a catchy, what a sexy, what an attention-grabbing title. I mean, it's hard to not pick up a book called Interaction Ritual Chains. And he comments, every dog will have its day is more accurately, every day will have its dog. So this is like Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister in the 1950s, asked, what will shape the success of your administration? He says, events, my dear boy, events, the unexpected and how you react to them, that will shape whether or not you will be successful in politics and many other spheres of life. So incidents shape people, however momentary they may be. Encounters make encounters. It is games that make sports heroes. It is politics that makes politicians into charismatic leaders. So let's get a little bit more here from uh, Randall Collins. He says, there is no privileged reality standing outside of situations, right? Only a chain of situations and the preparation for more chains of situations. So there is nothing beyond the situation in a particular point in time. Okay. Another meaning of sacred, uh, of charismatic is when you become sacred. Right when you become the object of attention, right? Right now, I am enjoying the completely undivided attention 
of nine viewers on YouTube, two viewers on Rumble, but there there was a day this week when I had more viewers on Rumble. I had like 28 viewers when I was doing the live stream on that NFL player who had the cardiac arrest and 22 on YouTube. So the days are already here where I get more viewers on Rumble Live than on YouTube. And I have one viewer on Odyssey, and we are currently going out live on Twitter. And what is the viewership like on Twitter right now? It's off the hook. It is zero viewers. Okay, I need to, I need to up my charisma. And yeah. uh, Elliot Blatt, yeah. speaking of charisma, what's going on, my bro? Uh, shalom, shalom, bro. Shalom. <clears throat> uh, so, uh, <clears throat> you had a little meditation experience. It's good. <clears throat> I had one too today. Well, Excellent. recently. Um, it's this new thing. I'm, I might write a book on it. I'm not sure if it's, or maybe just a blog post, <clears throat> but it's for driving. Like I, I had this giant epiphany while driving Beautiful. and it was like, there was a bit of traffic and normally the traffic sort of sends me into a rage and then I just felt it. <clears throat> and then I said, no. I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go through this rage cycle. I'm just going to cut it off and just deal with reality in the present. And I did it. It was possible. Like, it, <coughs> I had some control. <coughs> Have you ever had that experience? Uh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, <Luke. Yes. coughs> I only started coughing when I called in. <clears throat> This um, is the place of radical love and inclusion. <clears throat> so, um, I don't know. Maybe it was profound to me. Like, yeah. I could like, it's like, it's one thing to not express your foul emotions, but you could actually make the choice to not even feel them. Uh, sometimes, know? right? I, I, <laughs> like this, this wonderful experience may not replicate 100% of the time. No, no, you're right. I mean, but it did emphasize that, you know, you do have more control. You have more choice, right? As you, if you get, you know, if you pay attention to your emotions on a regular basis, You can have some control over them. Yeah, such as like whether you cough when you're on a live stream. Yeah, I wish I wish that were the case. <clears throat> oh no. Um, this this rain here in California has been ridiculous. I can't get a break, Luke. I need just a couple of dry days, and then everything will be fine. But we're getting deluged every single day it's ridiculous you hearing about this yeah yeah it's like dominates the news on apple news news plus but but what do you think yeah. of the chances of your being able to replicate this breakthrough experience um i think they're pretty high because i'm going to make it like um i'm going to make it a practice a discipline i'm going to work on this and deepen this and um, sort of apply this 
all the time. I mean, also I'm going to fall off the horse, but I'm just going to get back on the horse if I fall off the horse. So how do you plan to do that? <clears throat> how to get back on the horse? <laughs> no, how do you plan to replicate this experience? Well, I'm going to be just a vigilant custodian of my thoughts and feelings at all times. I'm going to see, I'm going to make that be my primary occupation while I'm doing regular, leading my regular life. I'm just going to be really attentive to my own internal state and work on refining it and being aware of it. And I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, this is, I'm not breaking any ground here. This is like what any meditation teacher will teach you, right? Um, it's just the resolve to practice it. It comes from within. It has to be a decision that you make on your part, on your own, out of your own volition. Now, do you have a meditative practice? I have in the past. I'm trying to <coughs> rekindle it. Uh, but with this goddamn cough, for one thing, it's, uh, makes it hard because breathing is such a central, uh, <coughs> excuse me. It's such a central piece to living, but most importantly of meditation. So if you can't breathe consistently, yeah, it's been hard. So it's been a rough month, Luke. So do you think that you suffer from ADHD? No, no, I don't. And I don't even believe it's a real thing. I, I, I believe it's, um, I think it's a medicalization of, no I think a lot of people, stuff. yeah, I think people are forced into things that they're not interested in. Um, I, okay. It's too, <laughs> it's too sided. <laughs> One part of it is people have, a low attention span because they're bombarded but with easy access to entertainment. This, if they're, if they just, if you, if you're used to having passive entertainment be your primary uh, time, your primary means of passing the time, you're not going to develop. It's like concentration is a muscle. It needs to be, it needs to be, developed and if needs to be developed through practice and repetition like anything else and if you don't do it if you don't concentrate um you're going to have what they call adhd you're just you're it's like it's like having a weak bicep i, I don't think it, i think it's anything more than that but then part two is i think a lot of people are forced into things forced in directions that don't suit their natural inclinations. So you have to be intrinsically interested in things if you're going to concentrate on them. And I think a lot of people are forced into mismatches between their natural (coughs) inclinations and uh, what they're actually forced to do. So I don't know, but I, I think it does come to the individual to uh, um, find their way and make make developing concentration be like a cornerstone of their sort of day-to-day life. You're a big believer in individual responsibility, individuals you know, taking charge of their life, whether it comes to health or psychological health 
you're a big believer in individual agency, individuals like, <coughs> taking responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Luke. I, who else? If not you, who, Luke? And, and do you feel like you have chosen the life that you have today? Do you feel like you've built the life that you have today? That it was a result of your volitional choices? Or do you feel like you're in the power of forces greater than yourself? I would say I'm 70-30. I think I'm 70% responsible for my circumstances. And 30, I'm a slave to events. <laughs> I've taken a lot of risks. I've taken a lot of silly risks. I've done, I've made bad decisions. And You've been impulsive. Yeah, I've been impulsive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, I guess, ultimately, I'm 100% responsible for where I, my lot in life but <sighs> but you didn't choose to be where you're at today right? you would never have chosen this mm, I don't think that's true I mean no I don't think that's true I mean what is that expression what do you want what do you want what you want is what you've got like, you've chosen to put yourself there, but it may not have been a conscious choice. It may have been an unconscious choice. So, um, does that make sense? Like, yeah, that's the theory. But I mean, is that is that what you feel? I mean, is that true to your heart, Elliot? <clears throat> I feel so. I feel. <laughs> it feels true. I don't think I'm trying. I'm trying to take your your question seriously. So, um, you mean like has life panned out exactly the way I wanted it to? No, of course not. So, but who else is that the fault of? What other people? circumstances events or you know i could have i could have sought guidance i could have listened to advice i could have done a lot of things differently right and so the result of me not having done that has you know landed me where i am so <laughs> you're you're sort of making the case for determinism in a way that makes me uncomfortable with I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I do want to offer you this gift. No one, no one ever is to blame. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I can't accept that. That's um, You can't accept this uh, gift that I'm giving you? I, I accept the gift. I accept all of your gifts. But the, the, the message that you're trying, that's conveyed in that song, I, I don't like that. Um, like... I think the individual matters, Luke. Right. Like you, you make a lot, you make, you make a lot of decisions, right? You make yeah. a lot of decisions about how you conduct your life. Right. Yeah. And 
there's still aspects of your life that you're not satisfied with, right? But you're not living randomly, right? You're living you're living with a certain degree of intention, right? Yeah. So you're really you're you're piloting your own ship, but the ocean doesn't necessarily cooperate with your intentions all the time, right? Sometimes right. the winds at your back, sometimes the winds in your face, and so. But I would say that's twenty percent, right? I think the eighty percent is the intentionality that you bring to your life. No. Okay, so you would go with like eighty uh, percent. Your typical individual in the United States of America today is responsible for where he is at, and twenty percent out of his control. I think I would put it maybe seventy thirty in the opposite direction. But I, I keep going back. We have to act. We have to speak. We have to make public policy as though people are overwhelmingly responsible for their actions, right? There's no other way to, to conduct public policy, I think, and, and criminal proceedings and legal proceedings, but the idea that people are responsible for their actions. But I know that when I look at my life right now, see, I was torn before this live stream. Should I live stream or should I go to the beach? And I felt like I had free will. But when I look back on my life, I see much smaller scope for for free will. When I understand my life, it it seems much more determined by all sorts of things outside of my free will. Yes. I, I, I know, I know what you're saying. And it's, it's, there's like, this is the free will conversation. Like, do we have free will? Right. Um, <clears throat> you saw Groundhog Day, right? Yes. Right, and so, so you remember the plot? Like, basically, the sequence events uh, would happen, and he would react certain certain ways, and that the ways he'd react would sort of direct sort of the outcome of that that little subplot, you know, that kept getting replayed and replayed. Um. I think there's always a moment like in the present, if you were aware enough, you'd make the right choice. Right. But what happens is, is you sort of go to sleep and then your, your, your automatic reactions take over that are not considered. But I, I think there's always, <coughs> there's always a moment in the present where you can make the correct decision. Wow. But yeah. Don't you wow. think? Uh, no, I've got a much more skeptical view of, of I mean, yeah, in one sense you're absolutely right, and that's how we have to talk to people, talk to ourselves, make public policy, <laughs> make laws, run a, run a legal system. Yeah, it has to be that way. But I, yeah. I have a skeptical view of human nature. I, I don't think people are basically evil, but I think for, for most people it's much easier to be selfish and self-serving than to do the right and the moral thing. So I also think that our, our reasoning is heavily affected by what's going on in our body, our emotions, our early childhood imprinting, uh, society around us, all sorts of cues that we're, we're getting. So in, 
in theory, we have to talk like we, we have overwhelming free choice. In, in reality, given the, the fallen nature of man to use Christian talk or the, mm. the human desire towards you know, wickedness and evil and depravity and selfishness, using more, more Jewish conversation, I, I also recognize you know, free will is, is fairly limited. I, I don't have a great deal of faith in the individual's ability to rationally choose what is right. I have more faith in, say, an individual belonging to a community where the community incentivizes the individual to do what is right. Well, that the community puts up guardrails and just, yeah. just, just doesn't let you cross certain lines. Yeah. Yeah. There is definitely a role for that. And that is, that is the value of tradition, right? Sometimes you don't understand why the rules are there, right? And it's only looking back that you understood the value of the rules later on because it prevented you from making a really bad mistake. Um, yeah, I mean, a, and a, pers- a person living alone, being alone, having no other external influences is going to make bad decisions. So they have no source of wisdom to connect to, right? Yeah. They have no... And... So in that sense, I agree with you. Yes. Um, but whether or not you, okay. Um, I guess I, I'm just resistant to this idea that, oh, well, yeah, that's just, you know, you, you, you're sort of like being, I just don't like the idea of like surrendering to the, surrendering yourself to the wind. Like, well, I guess that just happened things just happen here we are stuff's just happening um it just right. seems like too passive passive approach to life right. the, the, mm. the french the french have a saying to understand all is to forgive all and i do mm. have the point of view that everybody does what they think is right not that they're right about being right but that that's you know how, how people act they 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 try to further what, what they believe is the right thing all right. Do you believe in ADHD? Uh, yes, I do. You, you believe it's real? Yeah, but I've only believed this for like 24 hours or so. <laughs> it's, it's new. So you used to be on my side of the fence on this one. You no, I didn't mind. have an opinion. I just didn't know, know anything. But now I've watched a couple of YouTube videos. Yeah. I don't know. I... I get hit. I get hit with this, like, oh, I've got HD, ADHD, right? I get hit with this all the time, and this is a way of sort of putting a bandaid over some bad behavior, right? They just say, oh, I have this condition, right? And therefore, I fucked up, and therefore, you have to pay the consequences. <laughs> okay, let's say you met a woman you arranged to meet at a theater for Friday night for an eight p.m. date. <laughs> Um, and yeah. she doesn't show up and, and she says she has ADHD and let's say she's been diagnosed by a medical professional as having ADHD. So for me, that would be less wounding to my ego. If I had made a date for a woman, she doesn't show up. If, if I was able to believe that she really did have ADHD and that she meant me no harm, uh, that would be easier for me to deal with. Uh, how, how would you react in that situation? That woman would be dead to me. Yeah. 
<laughs> I would I would see her situation being so far gone that she was utterly unsalvageable. I would I would have I would curse myself for not have seen seen this pattern sooner and acted on, and just stayed away. And and uh, one of the characteristics of ADHD is that you easily uh, get dopamine deflated, right? You don't have any dopamine, and and the mundane is just unbearable, <sighs> particularly at work. Yeah. So I was just listening to a lecture. It says ADHD shows itself primarily in education because education is all about deferred gratification, and then it secondarily mm. shows itself in the workplace because you're you know you're emotionally volatile. You can't deal, you can't handle the mundane. Uh, you you start talking to people longer than they want to talk to you because you're not reading mm. social cues. And then it, the, the third way it manifests itself is in relationships, such as, you know, you don't show up for scheduled appointments, such as to, to a movie. And when I kind of heard this, it just rang really true to me. But how do you deal when you're pretty much empty with dopamine? You're just facing mundane tasks and you just feel empty inside like i would tend to deal with that by you know unhealthy ways would be to eat something or to drink something or to listen to music or to have, um, get some attention you know attention seeking behavior how do you deal when you're feeling absolutely depleted and you have nothing but mundane tasks at hand Funny you should ask that today, Luke. Um, Luke, uh, today I was at Costco, and I was standing in front of the uh, nicotine gum uh, display that they had yeah. there, and I was contemplating, like deep, deeply contemplating, whether or not to buy a pack of nicotine gum. This is pretty expensive stuff, you know. <laughs> it's like sixty bucks for two boxes. You know, <clears throat> and I knew that Tucker Carlson was really into nicotine gum. Yes. And I thought, because <clears throat> I do have those moments where I need to just plow through some stuff that I don't want to do. And I thought, well, maybe this would help me get me through those moments, you know? And I kept thinking, but is it really healthy to do, you know? Is it good for your heart? Isn't nicotine like bad for your heart it increases blood pressure so i'm going through i'm going back and forth and it took me like 10 minutes to decide and i finally decided against it um but i haven't ruled it out what, what are your thoughts about nicotine gum i think it'd be an excellent idea to have in the bullpen presuming <laughs> you don't get addicted to using it excessively yeah <laughs> so you've never tried this no no, no, I would not yeah. want to try it because, like, there's a um, there's an Asian massage parlor up the street, yeah. and yeah. seems like a very nice girl. But I've never done this, and I don't want to because <coughs> I can't trust what will be the consequences of if I if I just once taste the delight of you know paying for a, for a lingam massage. I just I, yeah. I don't like the consequences what will follow from that, and I also. That like the consequences of what would follow from if I got, you know, got into nicotine gum. Yeah. So, you think there are negative consequences for nicotine gum? I, I don't know. Whatever the Mas whatever the experts say. Yeah. 
I mean, it's available over the counter, but I guess so are cigarettes. Um, I don't know. I'll do some, I'll do some more research and get back to you. So I, I've got so, my crystal light. I, I, I filled I filled a bottle that formerly contained soy milk with uh, my orange crystal light. And my poor yeah. brother got up in the morning, couldn't find any of his coconut milk. So he takes yeah. my bottle of uh, soy milk in the fridge, starts pouring yeah. it onto his weed beds, and then says, what the hell is this? Oh, soy milk is the worst. Well, it was now crystal light orange, classic orange. Oh, oh, it was <laughs> okay. But you you drink soy milk? Occasionally. Oh God, that stuff is terrible. Um, so judgmental. What about almond milk? I can I can tolerate almond milk. No, I, I probably milk. drink twenty times as much almond milk as soy milk. Uh, okay. But you know, right, I'll do yeah, anything yeah. once. I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> Sounds immoral. Thanks. Uh, so I had one more thing to bring up, um, yes. but I, it's eluding me. Um, so you might have what, to wait. What are your thoughts on charisma? Oh, charisma. charisma. Yeah, charisma is like people with charisma. It's sort of like they they have like a higher energy level, and they. There and it's like if they can do it, I can do it, right? There's yeah. that sort of the reason they're attractive is because they make it seem like it's within your reach, you know. Um, so I mean, yeah, and it, they sort of there's a sort of hypnotic quality because you sort of forget your own cares and woes when you get caught up in someone else's charisma. There's a certain uh, escape from reality at the same time. <coughs> I don't know. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. Okay, Greg, you remember the other point that you wanted to talk <coughs> to? No, I don't. I don't. Okay. I think I'm going to have to hang up. Right. Okay, my friend. I'm, uh, I'm coughing. All right, bro. I'll listen. Yeah, well, so right, take peace. care, bro. <coughs> okay, okay bye-bye. Okay, bye. back to uh, Randall Collins, another sociologist here. Says a sacred object is the object upon which the attention of the group is focused, and so it becomes the repository of the group's emotional energies. When someone feels oneself in this position, they then have an added store of emotional energy for their own use. I remember the tremendous charge in emotional energy I got when I went on Worski Live, and there were like 2,700 live viewers, and the chat was flowing like a mighty river. And when I have 100 live viewers as opposed to nine live viewers, I have a lot more emotional energy. I have a lot more energy, period, when there are 900 live viewers, when there are 1,000, 2,000 live viewers, I feel a lot more energetic. And so when you are the focus of a lot of people's attention, that imbues you with a store of tremendous energy for your own use. That makes you charismatic, right? You compel attention. Other people become spectators to you. And they are you know, channeling attention, which, which carries with it uh, energy, right? It's like the the flow of sacred emotional energy. This is Randall Collins' perspective. So, uh, Randall Collins says, the upsurge of the gay and lesbian movements has been affected by the increasingly focused eroticization of youth culture. For the heterosexual elite in the youth scene, they did not entirely dominate a ranking of erotic non-elites 
emulating them, deferring to them, or retiring unashamedly before them, also motivated social movements rebellion against the civil hierarchy, the erotic party culture. So there's a fair amount of idealization what, what, what went on in the hippie scenes of the 1960s, but the techniques that gave us the hippie movement gave it its charisma and identity, right, then you know, took over youth culture, right, and then became the mainstream of youth culture. This is uh, Randall Collins, he says, sexual passion is not pri primordial, but a form of emotional energy. It is specialized for its particular symbolic objects because of the way they become charged up with attention in particular types of interaction rituals. All right, I just finished reading Stephen Turner's memoir called Mad Hazard, A Life in Social Theory. So he's like a philosopher of the social sciences. And he started off in sociology and he said, a great illusion I subscribed to there was that theory mattered. Right? The conventional picture was that science requires theory and methods, which in effect are two different poles, but they need to be integrated into research projects. So theory provides the hypothesis that the methods are used to test. But sociology didn't really have this. It wanted to be like physics, but really couldn't pull it off. So sociology doesn't have any real theories in the sense that physics has theories, such as the theory of relativity. What sociology has is paradigms. And from the point of view of the elite, if there were only one paradigm, it should be theirs. So the historicist and the situationist sees that our ideas are shaped by our time, our social circumstances, and the conflicts they produce. Uh, one of uh, Stephen Turner's great books is Liberal Democracy 3.0. So he makes the point that Liberal Democracy 1.0, 2.0 means government by discussion, right? It requires both the willingness and the ability to be persuaded that that which is political is a political decision and what is expert is also a political decision. So claims of expertise are assertions that you have opinions that go above and beyond politics. You are in a special realm. But this itself is a claim in the realm of the political. So the boundaries between the realm of expertise and the realm of politics are constantly moving. Organizations, including the state, employ the strategy of using experts, and they are then faced with counterclaims of other experts. So politics in the 3.0 stage of liberalism is in large part about expert power. And how do people who can't understand what the experts are talking about decide to you know, follow or not follow the experts. Then he talks about the famous sociologist James Coleman started researching and writing about white flight, which was a topic that the left was anxious to deny. And so James Coleman got essentially ostracized from the field of academic sociology for talking about what uh, the left wanted to deny white flight. So if you object to Carl Schmitt's states of exceptions, what would you put in their place? Perhaps a state that cannot resolve its issues within the law deserves to be dissolved. I gives this saying from the 1960s, the student, about the 60s student result, the students and the faculty fought and the administration won. Oh, so Stephen Turner recognized the dramatic 
growth. What's the most number of viewers I've had? I've had viewers pretty close to a thousand on at least two occasions, live viewers. One was the Jim Go Saturday night thing. And another time was when I think I was covering live writing in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So Stephen Turner, academic, recognized the rise of political correctness on campuses. And there was this incident in the 1990s when Dr. Fernando Ferdi Pacheco, who'd been the ringside physician for Muhammad Ali, gave a talk at uh, this campus, University of Southern Florida, and he was accused by two women faculty members of sexism. He was violently denounced because his book mentions the large bosoms of uh, some of the women in his book. And then he went to a department meeting, and the topic was an invitation to speak that had been extended to Condoleezza Rice by the Young Republicans. So at the time, she was a provost of Stanford, and she had not yet been appointed National Security Advisor by George W. Bush. And this meeting was a rare show of consensus. Nobody thought that she should be allowed to speak. No one spoke up for freedom of speech. And Stephen Turner thought, my situation is precarious. If I am accused of something, it's all going to end in tears. I'm going to keep my opinions of Judith Butler much else to myself. And... Stephen Turner has been a prolific academic. He's published many books, many papers, and even the most obscure papers he's, he's published have often gotten you know, very vicious takedowns. And it made him realize that whatever one writes, and you can say whatever one live streams, there is a student in a garret in Berlin ready to take you down. So Stephen Turner stumbled into becoming an international relations theorist. So he wanted to do a paper on Hans Morgenthau, an international relations theorist who moved to the United States, I think, around the time of World War II. So Hans Morgenthau, essentially a realist, and he had a theory, an idealization of the responsible leader and any straying from the behavior that conformed to his idea of a responsible leader courted danger and everything derived from this. So... Stephen Turner wrote a paper on this, sent it to American Political Science Review, and he got back a comment, since NATO has not absorbed Ukraine, realism as an international relations theory is dead. So why it published on Hans Morgenthau? But uh, Stephen Turner did begin teaching international relations, and he found that American students, generally speaking, knew nothing about political history. They knew nothing about international relations. They were typically sentimental they thought everyone should get along by being nice. The ex-military and the foreign students, by contrast, were intensely engaged, knowledgeable, and open-minded. So Stephen Turner also took down democratic theory. That's the idea that a system should be made to be more democratic by the right reforms. But these reforms aren't about giving the voters more power. To be progressive is to be ahead of the people. Right? You need to change the Constitution, change the rules of the game to be, quote-unquote, more democratic to produce the right outcomes. President assumption, the assumption is the present system is undemocratic, insufficiently democratic, and the strategy, though, is not to appeal to the people but to the courts who change the rules of the game on grounds of equity and equality and access. So one basic function of voting, which Tucker Carlson was just talking about, is to tell the state or a particular politician that it or he has failed. So democracy is a system, according to Max Weber, where you select the leader and then you shut up and obey. 
But if the leader fails, to the gallows with him. So during the Trump administration, there was a great deal of talk about democratic values, but no one said what they were supposed to be. So Stephen Turner argued democratic values mean accountability. That's the core value of democracy. Without accountability, there can be no meaningful rule of the people. Those are some of the the good bits there from Stephen Turner. Okay, here is the talk on ADHD that has really got me thinking. And then at the end of that, I will talk specifically about recommendations that we often convey to adults and their families on how one might try to address these difficulties. I can't guarantee that you'll be able to address all of them, but here are the things, at least in the States anyway, that people are um, implementing in order to help adults with ADHD. By the way, I should have showed you this earlier. These are my sources of income, so you can see if I have any conflict of interest. I have a ton of conflicts, so I'm conflicted with everybody at this point, but I do work for all the pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. and Canada. Okay, the prevalence of adult ADHD very quickly is about... 4.5%, 3.5% worldwide. It's actually more common in developed and undeveloped countries, but that has to do with survival rates of children. And we see ADHD varying across age, sex, social class, and so on, so it's not spread evenly across the population. But by adulthood, the normal 3 to 1 ratio seen in children of boys to girls has begun to become much closer, suggesting that there may be something about female ADHD that's a little bit later to manifest itself, or at least to begin to produce impairments, than we see in male ADHD. Eventually, by adulthood, they are equally severe. And by the way, our studies of women with ADHD show that there are very few differences between men and women with ADHD that are not due to the normal differences between men and women in general. So any differences we find, we find across all of our control groups, not just specific to the ADHD group. There's very little that is specific to ADHD in women. And I say that because there are books on the subject in the trade literature that have made claims to the contrary, but which are not based on any scientific studies. Female ADHD is not a qualitatively different disorder from male ADHD, but it does have, as we will see. So would most live streamers be kind of ADHD? So one common career trajectory for people with ADHD is that they become self-employed. Because people, apparently with ADHD, they need immediate results. And so if you're self-employed, right, you're going to pay the bills or not pay the bills you know, based on your own efforts. Well, if you're an employee, you can often get away with not producing for a longer time period. Some differences in impairments that are likely to be due uh, to the ADHD. And that has to do with role divisions in society. Now, we do know that only 1 in 10 adults with ADHD in the U.S. is currently diagnosed and treated, whereas it's 6 in 10 children are diagnosed and treated. So we've done a much better job with public mental health in the child psychiatry area, whereas only recently, as all of you know, has adult ADHD actually even been put on the radar screen of adult public mental health. And still there are many adult psychiatrists and psychologists who still do not understand that adult ADHD is in fact... So this is Dr. Russell Barkley. ...a valid disorder that needs to be diagnosed and treated. Now, over the next hour, I'm going to show you a variety of impairments as they stack up in adult ADHD, and we're going to look at each of these specifically, and then we're going to talk about how best that these might be managed. I don't know why that middle one hasn't come in yet. There it is. Ah, it was in order to be salacious, that's why. <laughs> Nevertheless, notice what's happening here. There, as, as the child moves on to become the adolescent, to be... Okay, unhealthy lifestyle, tick. Yeah, I had that. A lot of risk-taking, uh, loneliness... Financial problems, yeah, for 10 years I carried over $50,000 in credit card debt. Occupational problems, yeah, I've never earned over six figures. Accidental injuries and driving, yeah, I had got into a lot of car accidents. Risky sexual behavior, yes, I've never gotten an STD, but it was a little risky. Early parenthood, no. Smoking, no. Caffeine, not really. Legal difficulties, where well, I was sued five times for libel, relationship and family issues, yes. Limited educational success and never graduated from college. I was a mediocre student. 
in primary, middle, and high school. Become the adult, there is this piling on of deficits that we see. And that's simply because the more domains in which you have access to, the more likely you are to become impaired in that domain. Five-year-olds don't drive, so driving can't be an impairment for them, but it can be once you get to, at least in the U.S., 16 years of age. Now, I'm going to be sharing with you the results of my own research, specifically a very large study, one of the largest ever done to date, on adults with ADHD. This was published last year in my textbook on adult ADHD that you see here. Kevin Murphy was my colleague on this study, and it took us seven years to do this study because this is a very thorough, in fact, it is the most thorough evaluation of impairments related to adult ADHD ever published. We looked at 146 adults. So... Part of my ADHD is that I'm a serial enthusiast. I'm always enthusiastic about some new magic key to explain life. The reason I, I deride magic key thinking is precisely because I'm so susceptible to it. So I just started listening to this guy talking today, and I think, my God, this explains the trajectory of my life. I wish I'd known this earlier. Diagnosed in our clinic with ADHD. Most importantly, we compared them to a psychiatric control group. It's easy to compare adults with ADHD to normal adults and get massive differences. But what we want to know is what's specific to ADHD. What is it that ADHD does that other disorders that we see in outpatient clinics, anxiety disorders, depression, relationship problems, personality disorders, drug use problems, what is ADHD doing that's specific that's not necessarily seen in those other disorders? So this was a groundbreaking study because it's one of the few studies that has a control group with other disorders. And for the sake of science, that becomes extraordinarily important. So here's our control group. These were adults who came to the same adult outpatient psychiatry clinic at our medical school. This was an ADHD adult clinic, and these people came because they thought they were ADHD, but they weren't. Turns out that they had other disorders, and you can see that the vast majority of them had anxiety or mood disorders. Doesn't mean those two can't go together, by the way. Many adults with ADHD have them. It so this guy said about 20 things in an 80-minute talk I found absolutely fascinating. One of them was that psychiatry can do far more for ADHD than for depression and for anxiety. And that this is like the, the number one mental health issue problem that we face. It means that we found ADHD not to be present in the lives of these individuals. Their problems were entirely accounted for simply by the other disorder. Now, when we interview these patients, and from here on out, you will see three bars on every graph. You will see the adults with ADHD. That will always be the first bar. You will see the clinical control group and then the general population control group of adult volunteers in our study. And what you see here is that both of our clinical groups were quite impaired, as they should be. I mean, after all, they're being referred for assistance. There better be some. So, yeah, if you took an objective look at my life, you'd have to say, you know, 40 has been massively impaired. 40 never got married, never had a relationship longer than a year, you know, never earned six figures. You know, it was blessed with all these talents. You know, what the hell did he do with them? And so that's where it's it's so tempting to, you know, find this, this one variable which seems to explain so much of how, you know, I didn't live up to expectations, right? I, I didn't fulfill... Uh, people's hopes and dreams for me. You know, I let a lot of people down. You know, why Why did I become the great underachiever? Some problem in life, work, home, relationships, school, whatever, because no impairment, no disorder. In case you're wondering, where does ADHD begin and a sparkling personality leave off? <laughs> it's where impairment begins. And impairment isn't a major life activity. Now, I want you right, that's where addiction begins. And, you know, other, you know, heavy drinking, there's a separation. Like, you can be a heavy drinker and not be an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic when your life is being impaired by your drinking. If you're a heavy drinker but you never get arrested, you, know, you don't suffer impairment from it, then it's not an addiction. If you like to gamble but you're not suffering impairment from it, it's not an addiction. If you sometimes look at pornography but you don't suffer impairment from it, it's not an addiction. If you sometimes eat massive quantities of you know, sugary foods but you don't suffer impairment from it, on an ongoing basis and once you do suffer impairment from it you can't stop doing this destructive activity or taking in this destructive 
substance, right? You're not addicted. That's the classical 12-step approach, I believe. You should notice something here. Although there's a couple of areas where these two groups are close, in most of these areas, adult ADHD is a more impairing disorder. Now, this is based on self-report. We also interviewed them and others who knew them well about their childhood years, and the differences become even more startling here because you can see that even as children, these people are self-reporting much greater impairment across these various life activities than is the case for other psychiatric disorders. What you're going to see is the same pattern. Like, why the hell was I a mediocre student all through primary school, middle school, and, and high school? Uh, you know, I was blessed with an above-average brain. I was born with an academic father. But any, anything that I find mundane, right, I find challenging or, or difficult. I just kind of drains me of all energy and drive to take care of the mundane. So I'm like just kind of wired to be endlessly seeking stimulation and attention and risk. In every slide, which is going to allow us to conclude that ADHD is one of the most impairing adult outpatient disorders seen in mental health clinics today. More impairing than anxiety disorders, depression, relationship problems, and other difficulties for which people seek outpatient treatment. Not as impairing. That fascinated me. And from the tiny, tiny, tiny little bit that I know about this, it also makes sense. Impairing in inpatient disorders, such as bipolar disorder, psychosis, schizophrenia, and so on, or even adult autism, those are very severe disorders, but certainly more impairing than the traditional outpatient disorders that most people in primary care in particular would feel comfortable managing. ADHD impairments at school and work in this description. We looked at the educational histories of these individuals. In fact, we even got their transcripts through high school, and those who attempted college, we got their college transcripts with their permission. And although I can't go over every little tidbit that we found, I remember in second grade on my report card, the teacher said, Luke is always very willing to share his opinions with the class. Uh, 50, 48 years later, I'm still doing this. But he needs to learn to be more considerate of the slower thinker. Right? Poor social skills, not reading social cues, which would cost me friendships, relationships, inner peace, and you know, basic normal functioning in life because I refused or didn't notice social cues. In the histories of these individuals, you can read my book on adult ADHD for all of those findings. You can see here what we found. Education was the most impaired domain if you had ADHD. And although ADHD is going to interfere with other major life activities, this is the big one. And there's a good reason for that if you just hark back to this morning's lecture. Education, more than any other aspect of life, requires deferred gratification. And deferred gratification... I could never get myself to do anything that I wasn't interested in. Right? I just didn't have the strength. I just didn't have the drive. I just didn't have the energy. I just didn't have the... I think it's called executive function to do anything that didn't absorb me and not many things absorb me, right? The mundane, right? I've not done very well in the mundane, right? In some of the more exciting areas of life, I've been extraordinary. But most of life is not ex exciting. Most of life is mundane. And it's in this most of life that I have come up, you know, way below normal average functioning. ...is what ADHD can destroy. So no surprise, it would be the area of life that most taxes delay of gratification, that people with ADHD would find themselves to be the most impaired. I took geometry like twice in high school. I, I so bollocked up my, my scheduling that as a junior or a senior, I was taking like freshman composition. Like I got a C in an English literature class in, in college. Like there's no way I should have gotten these low grades, but something was off. One of my resolutions in dating was to never date anyone who was worse than me at reading social cues because I knew how bad I was. And I think I mean, on one or two occasions can I ever recall like, dating someone who was even worse than me at reading social cues.
and and she would comment on how I always needed stimulation, like I always needed to be like listening to a book or reading a book, or you know, always always needed stimulation, other kinds of stimulation too. And you can see here that it was a substantial percentage of patients had experienced these various outcomes. We found that a third of our adults with ADHD never finished high school, which is three times the U.S. average of failing to complete compulsory education. So that alone is a very telling statistic, because the cost to a community if an adolescent doesn't complete high school is $375,000 to $500,000 U.S. That is what the community will lose in extra wages, extra taxes paid, extra value to the community, and increased dependence on social and other services. I think many live streamers also have ADHD. I know I just very easily fall into a mindset where I don't take sensible precautions. I just feel like, oh, nothing will happen to me, or I don't care. And, and I start you know, engaging in risky, reckless behavior, whether it's on a live stream, in blogging, or in other areas of life. I've not been the greatest driver. I've had more than my average share of accidents, uh, speeding tickets, parking tickets, all from failing to pay attention, meaning you know, lousy executive functioning. I think that's the right terminology. ...that are provided by the community. I dare say the cost would be higher up here because you provide more services than we do. Now, when we look at the school as well as the work domain specifically, and we interviewed our adults, we found that in the work and school environments, the inattentive executive deficits were far more impairing in those domains than was the impulsive and the hyperactive deficits. We did find, however, that the emotional impulsiveness, however, was quite specific in predicting how many jobs you would be fired from in your life. So that your executive deficits are determined... I've been fired from, like, 15 jobs in my life. Like, I was fired from, like, the first three jobs I held in my life from age 11 on. Like the, the responsible, normal people I know around me have never been fired. So why the hell did I get fired? Some of it was lack of attention to detail. Some of it, you know, lack of lack of drive. You know, other times it was emotional volatility. Now I've experienced a lot of improvement from these symptoms from taking up the Alexander technique. So ADHD is not nearly as much of a problem for me today as it was more than. 15 years ago. I mean, how poorly you might be doing your job, but your emotional impulsiveness is going to predict whether you get fired. So the two symptom dimensions of ADHD have somewhat different correlates over time and predict different risks and outcomes. But mainly in school and in work, it's the executive deficits, as you see here, that are resulting in a number of complaints that our adults with ADHD voice to us about how they were suffering in the workplace and especially the impulsive decision-making. Now, there were additional concerns as well, difficulties following directions, frequently changing jobs out of boredom, usually with no other job to go to. They just up and quit, right? I just didn't feel like working today. Yeah, for, for much of my life, I wasn't particularly interested in following directions. I was just so cocksure that I do better than everyone else, right? And the more I was failing in reality, the more I was failing with the mundane tasks of life, the more I retreated to a fantasy world which then made me even less adapted to dealing with reality. So I told my boss to shove it, and now I'm home, all right? <laughs> now what do I do? Okay, it's very, very common to see this inability to bridge this. Okay, I don't like this job, but maybe I should have another one lined up before I finally tell my boss what I think of him. Several studies, my own included now, but especially the New York Longitudinal Studies, are showing a massive drift to self-employment by age 30 and up. Now, this could be explained by two possible reasons, and they're not mutually exclusive. It could be an adverse outcome. Individuals with ADHD find it difficult to sustain employment when they work for other people. So what's left? They self-select into self-employment. On the other hand, it may be that self-employment is a positive niche because you can be your own boss. You can set your own schedule. You can work with during your peak levels of attention and arousal. We know that adult ADHD delays the normal diurnal rhythm by about three to four hours. So adults with ADHD are more likely to report afternoon and night times as their most productive time. 
whereas normal individuals, that is the general population, I use the word normal loosely, but the general population usually finds that the morning to early afternoon hours are their peak hours of activation. So whatever the reason may be, self-employment may allow a flexibility, a forgiveness, a latitude that is not provided when you work for other people and you have to adhere to their demands. So one of the great things about 12 programs and why they're not as cold as you might imagine is that they do not discourage getting outside help. And so a lot of people in 12-step programs, they don't make much progress in their recovery through working the 12 steps, applying the, the 12 tools, going to meetings, you know, prayer, meditation. Right? They don't make much progress until they deal with their ADHD. Right? But for some people, until you deal with your ADHD, you know, the spiritual path, you know, the path of 12-step recovery, this or, or that, it's not going to work for you. Right? Sometimes you have to deal with something you know, crippling, like ADHD, before you can then get traction in a 12-step program or with a mentor, a sponsor, a good therapist, some other way of improving your life. Like, I didn't get traction with my energy and my strength and my health until I started taking beef organ capsules from ancestral supplements about 18 months ago. I got my strength and my energy back. I'm about to go to the beach and go for a good swim and have a jog and their schedule, their hours, and so on. And also, let's not forget that in self-employment, the consequences are very near. And as we explained in the last lecture, the closer the consequences are, the better you do. If you're self-employed and you don't work... Yeah, that's me, right? I, the closer consequences are, the better I do. The more removed I am from consequences, the worse I do, the worse I behave. The more you know, risk-taking I do, the more sloppy and antisocial I get. Immediate consequences are really good for me. Like lots of feedback is really good for me. <laughs> Doing a live stream, getting that, that immediate feedback, is really good for me. You don't eat. If you work for other people, you can slack off a little bit and still get that check at the end of the week. So there may be something about the way consequences occur in these forms of employment that may be beneficial to the adult with ADHD. We just don't know, but certainly we are beginning to see a rise in the area of self-employed activity in about a third <clears throat> of our adults with ADHD. And, of course, we've mentioned the problems with organization and self-discipline and <clears throat> pardon me, emotional impulsiveness. But now research in Europe and here has begun to put specific consequences or costs on adult ADHD in the workplace. For instance, in Mannheim, Germany, at the university, a study was just done that shows that if you have adult ADHD, you are less likely to be productive in the workplace about 22 days a year more than other people. You can put a cost on that. That actually produces a, a detrimental effect on the workplace and your employer. Our adults with ADHD were interviewed about problems they might be having in the workplace, and you can see what we found here. Adults with ADHD complain much more across most of these areas of workplace difficulties than did adults in either of our control groups. Uh, particularly, <clears throat> look at the one about quitting a job out of boredom. I just don't care for this job anymore. It's not very interesting. I'm out the door. You know, two to two and a half times more likelihood of changing jobs. And changing more jobs, that was a percentage, not a frequency measure. The frequency measure is even greater. <clears throat> and so if we start to put costs on this, you will see here that there's at least a 4-5% reduction or more in overall productivity, two times the rate of sick leave, two times the rate of accidental injuries in the workplace. And the cost to the employer per year is going to be about four to 5000 U.S. dollars of decreased productivity in the workplace. You add that up, that gets to be a lot of money. That is billions of dollars. So Okay, that's uh, Dr. Russell Barkley talking about ADHD, something I've just started learning about really in the last uh, 24 hours. I'm off to the beach. I'll talk to you later. It's now 5.11 p.m. in Tenham Sands, January 6th. So I'm probably living 15, 16 hours in the future compared to where you might be in California. Bye-bye.